the reading of the Scriptures. This morning from Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, so I invite uh, your hearing and faith, the public reading of God's Word from Acts chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we're uh, starting the second missionary journey uh, as uh, Paul uh, is uh, gathering uh, help uh, to uh, replace uh, Barnabas and John Mark. And we will learn here uh, how the church is going to advance under those particular circumstances. And uh, these, are, these are lessons that should not be lost upon us, for they are uh, entirely applicable uh, to our own day. And the theology that is present in our text, of course, spans the centuries. And again, uh, bids us uh, to remember uh, the intentions of God to advance the gospel throughout the world. Uh, the uh, uh, missionary journey, uh, not unlike the first one, uh, has a, a concern for evangelism among the Jews, uh, verses 1 to 3. And then what we could well expect, doctrinal uh, clarity among the Gentile churches, verses 4 and 5. So again, uh, the historic context uh, beyond simply the second missionary journey is really a uh, pastoral concern to strengthen the churches that have started in the first journey. Uh, it's important to remember that uh, the Apostle Paul, not unlike our Savior, uh, many of the authors of the books of the Scriptures uh, had a great pastoral concern for their people that they advance properly in the faith. Uh, there's also this uh, concern uh, to uh, remember the advance of the gospel among the Gentiles, pardon me, the Jews. It's well worth remembering Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 16. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to those who believe, to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. So the missionary journey is going to mirror the journeys of our Lord because he went to the Jews first. And then he turns to his apostles uh, and bids them to wade in to the advance of the gospel among the Gentile nations. And what we learn in terms of uh, the content and the method of this journey is that personal sacrifice is necessary for the advance of the gospel, certainly among the Jews. Personal sacrifice. Uh, certainly we know that the advance of the gospel is wedded mightily 
to the sacrifice of Christ, the personal sacrifice of Christ, but it's also going to advance by the personal sacrifice of individual members of the church. So in Derby, in Lister, Paul and Silas encounter a young disciple named Timothy. It's interesting, uh, his name is uh, literally uh, one who honors God. Uh, we know from 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 that his mother and his grandmother were believers. Think about in that context in the sense of the generational advance of the gospel. A grandmother, a mother, and then a son. Uh, and that's really a remarkable expression of the life of the church and our own families. Uh, we labor, of course, to know the faith not merely for our understanding in the faith, but to infect our children with the faith. Because again, our faith is generational. And uh, by the grace of God, uh, that I trust that would be the case in our own church. Uh, it's well worth remembering 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. Paul writes of Timothy, if you're mindful of your uh, sincere faith that is within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure it dwells within you as well. And it's important in that regard, uh, how did uh, Timothy uh, come to the knowledge of the faith? Well, certainly by the Spirit. The saving power of the Spirit gives him new life. But again, it's this great, unprecedented generational event. 2 Timothy 3.15. And that from childhood, again speaking of Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. From childhood, the mother and the grandmother instruct their beloved son. Great exemplary action on behalf of what is to occur in our own families. Certainly church is a public event, also a family event. Uh, that mothers and fathers should, uh, out of love for their sons and daughters, teach them, instruct them. Of course, they can't create faith. Only God can do that in His saving power. But they set it all in motion by instructing in the Scriptures. It's very remarkable, of course, the New Testament was uh, uh, not codified at that time. Uh, so what were Lois and Eunice teaching from the Old Testament? And you and I should know, radically know, that every single word of the Old Testament speaks to Jesus Christ. Certainly in the profoundness of the typology. Certainly in the prophetic literature. But every word points to the Savior. And that's why the mother and the grandmother could instruct their young charge about the majesty of, of uh, our saving faith. A good example uh, for catechism in the family home. Uh, great works in the history of the church to catechize children. I would encourage you to ponder that because uh, we're simply not passing on Bible stories to our children. Certainly a part of it. But the theology, the theology of our faith. And uh, it's also worthy to know in terms of another generation 
that Paul is going to adopt Timothy spiritually and train him to advance the legacy that he learned from his home and the legacy that he's going to learn from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 4.17 Paul says to the church, For this reason I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in the church. The church is not just a generational event. It's a generational event that includes the teachings of the apostles, the content of their faith. It's not just some present contemporary event in the life of the church. If it's that, we're in profound trouble. It is a passing on of the teachings of the apostles who carried on the teachings of the Savior and all that that theology means. It's a radical event that ought to be occurring in our home and the lives of our churches. As well, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 22, but you know of his proven worth, writing of Timothy, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his son. Like in ancient times, uh, the child uh, learning the trade of his father. Learning to be uh, a journeyman to advance the faith. And that's teaching and instructing. It's also noteworthy in terms of the precision of the personal sacrifice that's going to advance uh, the faith. Uh, Timothy had a good reputation. Uh, Acts chapter uh, 16, first part of verse 2. And he is well spoken of by the brethren. The verb is literally to witness so that he was well witnessed about that he had a good witness. Uh, it's a reminder that in the faith, it's uh, not just words. It is words, and that's a radical event. Our faith is transmitted as a verbal event. Uh, the verbal inspiration of the Word of God, if you will. The Word of God that's inspired. Uh, the words are inspired. And we transmit that. But it's also maintaining uh, a good reputation, a godly life. That by God's grace, we keep ourselves for the purity and the priority of the gospel and the reputation of the church. The other critical detail about Timothy is the element of personal sacrifice to advance the faith. I think part of this text is uh, going to teach us uh, that the faith advances by personal sacrifice. We've already seen the generational sacrifice of mother and grandmother, of a learned scholar in the Apostle Paul. But now it's got to break upon Timothy in terms of a personal sacrifice. The form of the sacrifice is very uh, unique, but again, the application is not. The particular form here not going to break upon you, probably. Uh, so it's going to take another form, and I don't know what that is. I just know that it must be present. There must be personal sacrifice. 
in terms of a generational event, I, I would encourage you to reflect upon the fact that if you desperately want to, your children to grow up in the Christian faith, they need to hear it. But they also need to see you bleed. And I don't mean literally bleed, but I mean metaphorically bleed from personal sacrifice, being courageous for the faith and willing to suffer for it. Uh, sacrifice, again, is the essential. Uh, we, we know this in terms of the cross, do we not? Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your New Testament to uh, Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 11. So, great application of uh, personal sacrifice. Uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2 and uh, verse 11. And in Him, namely Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That Christ was cut upon the cross. He was punished. The violence of the wrath of God using evil men broke upon the Son of God. He was cut for us. And the lesson of the Apostle Paul from Colossians is uh, the cutting of Christ uh, cuts away uh, metaphorically or figuratively the foreskin of our hearts. That the flesh is cut away. Uh, that the bondage of sin might be broken. Uh, that the Spirit of God might give us a new heart. Uh, that produces faith uh, and good works by the cutting of Christ. Uh, and obviously it speaks radically to His sacrifice. The personal sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it's bulls and goats. Now it's personal. The Savior. And that's really the Gospel. Uh, And, and so in Him, uh, we read in Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive. My friend, that's the Gospel. It's the purity of the Gospel. He made you alive. Uh, you were dead. You didn't participate. He resurrected you. Ephesians chapter 2. He made you alive. That's a simplicity of the Gospel that you and I tra transmit to uh, the generations uh, by the purity of the actions of Jesus Christ who was cut for us uh, to cut our hearts uh, and uh, to enable us to believe. Uh, and again, the Gospels believe in Him and believe in Him alone. You bring nothing. Only believe in Him. He alone is the object of your belief. Well, Paul wanted Timothy to join the company. Uh, he needs to replace uh, the loss of two workers. Uh, he's done that partially in Silas, and now he's going to do it in Timothy. And the text reads, uh, Acts 16.3, and Paul uh, wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. He took him and circumcised him. As you know, circumcision in the Old Testament was uh, to the infant. Timothy's no infant. And therein is his personal sacrifice. 
Uh, you and I know that the Jerusalem Council clearly affirmed that the law was not to be added to the gospel. Uh, and Paul uh, more beautifully has written an entire epistle uh, to that end in the Galatian epistle. Because the Judaizers were always dogging the Apostle Paul. Saying things like, look, uh, you know, Paul is uh, Paul's a good man and uh, we're, we're, we're glad you've uh, received him, uh, but uh, he's only partially right. It's, uh, it's Christ uh, plus your circumcision. You must be circumcised. At that point, they've added to the gospel, it's Christ plus something. And the circumcision really is a synecdoche or figure of speech for the entirety of the law. In other words, you've got to do the law. Uh, it's uh, Christ plus the law. I would remind you in the majesty and period of the gospel, Christ uh, fulfilled all of the law for us because we could not. It's a beauty that he worked for us and the majesty that uh, uh, the merits of his work is imputed to our account. So we don't work because he worked for us. The basis of our justification. That Christ plus nothing. And that's what the Jerusalem Council has affirmed. Uh, remind you of uh, clarity of this uh, in Galatians uh, uh, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, Behold, I, Paul, uh, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be no of benefit with you. Because you've confused the gospel. Uh, if you're confused, there's probably not going to be a benefit there. Because what you're doing is you're thinking, well, Christ worked, and I need to work, so he does his part, and I do my part. That's a confusion, a radical confusion of the gospel. Galatians 5.3, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. Judaizers were essentially... Uh, uh, the gospel is Christ plus. Our gospel is Christ alone. Sadly to say, many uh, churches today in our culture, uh, many large denominations in our culture are Christ plus. We affirm with the Jerusalem Council. We affirm uh, with the church throughout the centuries, certainly rediscovered by the church and the Protestant Reformation. It is grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. And the operative word, as you know, is the word alone. Uh, furthermore, when the Judaizers wanted Titus to be circumcised, call, uh, Paul refused. Let's recount that event. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 3, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. If you're in that text, look at verse 5. But we did not yield. The moment they make circumcision an issue, Paul is unyielding. He's in radical opposition. Because it violates, of course, the council, but it also corrupts the gospel by adding, really, to what is a non-essential. So the larger point here really breaks upon this uh, 
uh, this principle. While Timothy was free, he sacrificed himself so as not to hinder the gospel among the Jews who were in those parts, referencing, of course, the geography of Galatia, encompassing part of modern-day Turkey. Because Paul did not want a non-essential to distract from the essential in his ministry among the Jews. He didn't want them to make an issue of it. And so he removes the issue. And who pays the cost, by the way? Timothy does. By setting aside his liberty. He didn't have to be. He could have said, no, Paul, I'm sorry. I'm I'm not going that route. Uh, You need to find someone else. I understand it's important to go to the Jews, but I'm sorry, just not me. No, he sets his liberty aside, and that's really the breaking principle. Because the defining issue, part of the defining issue of love is setting or constraining your liberty to advance the faith and the gospel. It's really beautifully, most beautifully expressed in the Corinthian epistle. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Encourage you, if you have your New Testament, uh, to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Because the principle is a very radical one. Uh, the particular context is uh, the Apostle Paul is uh, entirely free to be supported by the church at Corinth. But in terms of the church of Corinth, he sets that freedom aside so as not to hinder the faith among them as he labors in their midst. And so listen to his words, 1 Corinthians 9, in verses 19 to 23. For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jew I became a Jew, that I might win the Jews. And to those who are under the law, to those under the law, that though myself not being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the laws, without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Paul learned the majesty really of the essence of the sacrifice of the Savior. He sets his freedoms aside and he constrains his liberty to advance the gospel. It's precisely expressed in the physical act, circumcision of Timothy. The other principle, of course, again, is one I've alluded to, a non-essentials. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, for in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And what is love but the constraint of liberty to advance the gospel? Christ constraining himself to save his people. But you can, of course, set aside non-essentials. The non-essential is Christ plus nothing. Because that compromised the gospel. But you can set aside non-essentials. And I think that's the lesson of the text. 
that the advance of the faith occurs by personal sacrifice. Personal sacrifice advances the faith. There's another element here that's going to advance the faith. Uh, the gospel advances among the Gentile churches by doctrinal purity, verses 4 and 5. So the party advances through the region of delivering the council's decree that the churches were one. An equality based upon Christ plus nothing. And that's really the critical point. Uh, the essence of the decision is that Gentiles did not have to act like Jews. Theology is grace alone, by faith alone in Christ alone. So the church is one theologically on these essentials. And that's not something you can set aside. That's not something that you can reject. That's not something uh, that you disregard. Because if you do, you corrupt the gospel. Very interesting that the word decree in verse 4, Acts chapter 16, verse 4, we were delivering the decrees which had been cited upon by the apostles and the elders. This word decree is that from which we have our English word dogma. In our culture, it's a very pejorative term. The cognate dogmatic is even more so. Isn't it interesting that the dogma of the Council of Jerusalem is advancing the faith among the Gentiles? Uh, pretty much in our culture, we, we reject all dogma. Everybody makes his own rules. Everybody uh, has to be comfortable with what they believe. And so we set these things aside. Uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas are not doing that. They're delivering the dogma of the Council of Jerusalem, the majesty of the one-time sacrifice of Christ, and what it means to affect salvation. It's really a challenge in our culture. None of us suggest when we share the gospel we become dogmatic, because we share the gospel in love. But nonetheless, we cannot change it. We're simply the messengers. We're messengers in love, but the content is dogma. The messenger cannot deviate. Uh, the greater challenge, of course, is uh, the theological one, the historical one. Uh, most churches, again, I sadly tell you, uh, always adding something to the gospel. Freedom of the human will. Well, how do dead men, Ephesians chapter 2, have free will? Paul says you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Dead men don't have free will. They have a will under bondage. It's a point of the majesty of the gospel that he makes you alive so that you can believe and trust and hope. We're always adding something like faith plus works. Uh, radical that you understand in the history of the American church. This great division occurs over and over again. Think, for example, the first great awakening dominated by the theology of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards as they were faithful to the Word of God. Theology simply of the clarity of the Protestant Reformation. A hundred years later in the Second Great Awakening, that theology was waxing and waning. And many American denominations historically are birthed in that time. And already the corruption has crept into the church the addition of something to Christ alone. Uh, the great American, I say great, 
me rephrase that, the well-known American evangelist of the 19th century, Charles Finney, who denied total inability, who believed in a vague form of perfectionism. Uh, to him, revival was the right use of means. Uh, to us, his revival is the coming of the Spirit to save his people. Radical change has already been introduced uh, in the 1800s in the American church experience. Continues today, reduplicating itself. Uh, but we must remember that uh, doctrinal purity, while lost in the second great awakening by many churches, should not be lost upon us. Uh, that we have a profound historical connection uh, to the true church throughout the centuries. And so the churches, the Gentile churches, in verses 4 and 5, respond to this ministry. Let's look at Acts chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Uh, first, they were strengthened. Uh, the verb has the idea of to make solid or firm. Uh, this uh, verb is used of the great miracle in uh, Acts chapter 3 of the lame man. His ankles were strengthened, that the Lord strengthened him to come to faith. Absent that strengthening, uh, he would have not been healed, and absent that spiritual strengthening, he would have not come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's very interesting that it is from this word that we have our English word for steroids. Sometimes you go to the doctor and he, he says, uh, well, you got a lot of pain, I'm going to give you some steroids. Uh, be very careful here because you know I'm, I'm not a physician. But I'm not unmindful that many people uh, are given steroid shots to ease pain. That's really the reality here. That the Gentile churches were strengthened with respect to the faith or the truth of the gospel is a steroid to the faith. Its proper understanding is essential uh, to humility and the majesty of what God did in His Son alone. A cognate is, uh, is used in Colossians chapter 2, verse 5. For even though I am absent from the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. That the purity of the Gospel creates stability in the churches. Like the weakened knee because of pain or arthritis, uh, and and, and uh, the steroid shot, it's given stability. The truth, the majesty of the truth and the clarity and the purity of the gospel that Christ saves. He was cut for you. He cuts your heart away that you might believe in Him. He made you alive. Creates stability in the faith because we understand properly what the gospel is. Uh, it's it's a simple reality that your church is weakened by bad theology. We don't think in those terms the American church. In fact, we don't even like theology. Well, it becomes divisive, and we don't want any arguments, and so let's dilute it to its lowest common denominator, and then we'll all be one. The problem is, the moment you do that, you have weakened the church terribly, and it's probably no longer even a church. It's just a crowd who uses the name. 
Again, we don't think in those terms. We should. And that's why Paul is going throughout the Gentile churches, strengthening them to understand the clarity, the majesty of the gospel. So the key is uh, what's advancing the church, the Gentile churches, and the Jewish churches who are now one in equality. It's a personal sacrifice. Uh, and uh, the dogma, the clarity, the pristine beauty that Christ died to save us from our sins. And his death alone uh, is uh, the essence of the gospel. And that by his death, our sins were forgiven. And by the great gift of his Holy Spirit, we were made alive. And the church advances in this way. The dogma is a benchmark for our own church. The personal sacrifice is a benchmark for our own conduct. Our children need to see us believe. Sometimes our neighbors need to see us believe to advance the gospel. Like the words of the Apostle Paul, I've become all things to all men, and I might by all means save some. But also in this uh, Sunday morning as we come together, take of the sacrament of the Lord's table. Remember the sacrament is couched in the language of sacrifice. Uh, that Christ uh, uh, paid a personal sacrifice. And we come to remember it. We also come to fellowship uh, with the Savior. But reflect upon it uh, couched in the great language of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul said, pardon me, Jesus set his rights aside. He constrained his liberty. He didn't hold on to it. He let it go. Metaphorically, in the halls of heaven, he didn't say to the Father, I don't, I don't have to do that. And he was free not to. But he did because he set his freedom aside. He left heaven. Incredible personal sacrifice to be born in a manger and on and on to 33 years of incredible and intense personal sacrifice. He didn't have to do that, but he did. He set aside the voluntary use of his attributes. He could have said enough of this May all the legions of angels in heaven come and attack my enemies and destroy them. He voluntarily set that aside. Didn't have to, but he did. He assumed a human nature, though he was God, always God. There never was a time in which he was not God, but he took upon himself humanity and all of the weaknesses of humanity. Didn't have to. He was free not to. Because of his love, he constrained his liberty. He let it go. And he went to the cross to save us at great personal cost. This morning we come to celebrate him. 
Uh, we also come to be reminded of his love, that it teaches us to love, but to fellowship with him. Because our personal sacrifice is difficult, he gives us strength in the uh, elements of uh, his, his body and the shedding of his blood. And that is love, the personal sacrifice of Christ, uh, the one for the many. The sacrament of the Lord's table comes historically out of the great redemptive event of the Passover. A Passover lamb was sacrificed, shed its blood that the angel of death might pass over the houses marked with blood. Uh, you and I in the shed blood of Jesus Christ have been marked by the blood of the Savior and the angel of death and all of his minions must give us a wide berth because of his sacrifice. And we come to remember that this morning. Uh, there is a, uh, a great reminder that uh, the church is to be prepared. Remind you that if you're a visitor this morning, this uh, 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 sacrament at Grace Bible Church is an open communion. To all who confess Christ as their Savior and who are not living in known sin for which they are uh, unrepentant. Uh, if that is you, then you are welcome to come. Not the sacrament of Grace Bible Church. It's the sacrament of our blessed and only Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is a reminder that uh, uh, we should prepare ourselves properly in the confession of sin. Uh, not holding on to something for which we, we refuse to let go. preparing our hearts, remembering what he did, and fellowshipping with him. Uh, so uh, we come to examine ourselves in the knowledge to discern what Christ did uh, and to reckon that we have faith to feed upon him as his daily provision, to remember the benefits of his sacrifice and the total aspect of his sacrifice because he gave the entirety of his life, the one for the many. Uh, it's a great scriptural warrant, as you know. There are so many. I'll uh, simply repair to one uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 6, in verses 53 to 58. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is uh, true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. Of course, it's figurative language of faith. There's not life in the physical elements of the bread and the wine. It's in apprehending what they represent, the sacrifice of the Savior, that he gave his body, that he shed his blood. We believe in that. It's the entirety of the provision of our salvation. And we fellowship with our Savior as he comes uh, at the host of the table to remind us of all of the benefits of the sons of the new covenant. And so, uh, in a moment, I'm going to break uh, 
of the bread and to offer the cup. Uh, because of the virus, uh, we have on uh, uh, both north and south in the front of the church uh, so that you can come uh, lessening the human contact and uh, take uh, bread, uh, take the cup. You can either consume it there or you can return to your pew, whatever in the freedom of your conscience uh, is something uh, that you want to do. But more importantly, the majesty and beauty of what faith means in the living Savior, in the greater Passover Lamb, trusting Him, His sacrifice alone, uh, relishing the majesty of what it means to be covered by the blood of Christ, namely, the sons of God totally forgiven of all sins, totally forgiven, past, present, and future. An event so majestic and so sublime, it's difficult to apprehend the reality of it by faith bids us to come. Oh, oh, the joy of the forgiven sons of God. And that is what is before us this morning. I would remind you in the uh, elements of the service, in the uh, center of the service, uh, there is wine and periphery, there's grape juice, so that each may partake in the freedom of their own conscience and perhaps church tradition. Uh, but more importantly, uh, we apprehend by faith. It's not a physical event. It's a faith event and what Christ did and that Christ alone. Uh, before you come, there will be a, a season for you to perhaps engage the Lord in silent prayer. If there's something you need to deal with, I would encourage you to do that. It's what it means to properly prepare for the element of the Lord's table. But at some point, you, uh, you break off for reverie, for celebration, in the beauty of Christ, the beauty of what He did for you. That He constrained His freedom, set aside His liberty to purchase you. Let us, uh, let us give thanks uh, for the bread and the wine, uh, the sacrament in which we meet our precious Savior uh, in the Lord's table. Lord, we thank Thee for the bread of heaven, for our forgiveness, for the grace that keeps us safe. Make us full as we partake by faith that we might depart manifesting the incredible majesty of the gospel and the sacrifice of our Savior. Uh, we thank Thee as well, Lord, for our Savior who drank the cup of judgment for the grace of God because He did not have to. He could have refused it. But He drank the cup of judgment to His most bitter dregs. Uh, the indignity the pain, the cruelty of the cross, to shed His blood so that we can come and drink the cup of the new covenant and apprehend 
the majesty of our union with Christ and all of the benefits that accrue to us because we were in Him before the foundation of the world. And may that, as it should, transform us and strengthen us for the faith, for the advancement of the gospel, for our reputation in the world, and all that it means to believe in Christ alone. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please come, file out, come down and partake, return if you will. Let us pray. Lord, strengthen us in faith. May we perpetually remember the majesty of what it means to be in Christ alone. To be the sons of God, forgiven forever, awaiting in faith our inheritance. Come quickly, Lord, come quickly. 
In the blessed name of Christ, our only Redeemer, we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for uh, coming to be with us uh, this the Lord's Day. It is our uh, practice to meet God in His Word and in the sacrament. And uh, trust your own faith was uh, strengthened as a result of the great provisions of God in the revelation of Himself in Scripture and His presence in the sacrament of the Lord's table.